Open up your Bibles, John chapter 8. We're going to begin in verse 31. Now this is the same set of outlines, in case you're my brother looking for the outline in the pew, that's entitled Conflict with the Pharisees Exposed. We looked last time at the discourse on the light of the world as part of this conflict that the Lord exposes. And in this part, it's a discourse on spiritual freedom. We're going to read from John chapter 8, verse 31 through verse 59. Then said Jesus, and it gives us the audience, to those Jews which believed on him. As we wrapped up the text last time, we noticed that uh, even though there were some mean words in what the Lord had presented in his discourse, some believed. And that's who he's addressing here. To the Jew those Jews, why just the Jews? Not to the Gentiles yet. And we just concluded the Feast of Tabernacles. So hopefully that kind of brings us back into the context of where we're at here. He says, if you continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. Well, that lines up with follow me. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Free from the death that was spoken of above uh, in our previous section, but also the free, uh, free from the result of sin debt, free from what's tied to our own depravity. And they answered him, we be Abraham's seed, and we're never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth forever. If the son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. I know that ye are Abraham's seed, but ye seek to kill me, because my word hath no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with my father, and ye do that which ye have seen with your father. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus saith unto them, If ye were Abraham's children, ye would do the works of Abraham. But now ye seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard of God, and this did not Abraham. Ye do the deeds of your father. Then said they to him, We be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, ye would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, neither came I of myself, but he sent, he sent me. Why do ye not understand my speech, even because ye cannot hear my word? Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the, church, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. Which of you convinceth, and this word here means to reprove, rebuke, or even convict, depending on the context, which of you convinceth me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, uh, and you'll note that these were more harsh words, they say, Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan and hast a devil? Jesus answered, I have not a devil, but I honor my father, and ye do dishonor me. And I seek not mine own glory. There is one that seeketh and judgeth. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. There's another promise that's tied to follow me. Follow me. You shall never see death. Then said the Jews unto him, Now we know that thou hast a devil. Abraham is dead, and the prophets. 
And thou sayest, If a man keep my saying, he shall never taste of death. Art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead? And the prophets are dead. Who makest thou thyself? Whom makest thou thyself? Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father that honoreth me, of whom ye say that he is your God. Yet ye have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say, I know him not, I shall be a liar like unto you. But I know him, and keep his, his saying, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. Then took they up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself, and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we consider this text, please, Father, keep fresh in our minds the context, the audience, uh, the, the recent events that preceded this, Lord, help us to feel the reality of this moment in the Lord's ministry as we continue this study, to understand that these aren't merely mean words, to understand the truth that you had for your son to display for your people, for these that are in the scriptures declared at the beginning of this text to believe. Help us, Father, to understand, to understand the significance of this. Please, Father, be with our prayer request. Increase our faith. Help us to see, Father, our mission more clearly. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's some things he asks here, and, and this would have been a really tough sermon for the Lord to deliver. Uh, and I don't say tough like he, he struggled with the emotions behind it. But you can see, and, and really, honestly, I, when I was putting the outline together, I don't, I don't typically read it out loud to myself. But reading it out loud to y'all, I hear some things I didn't really necessarily pick up when I was reading it just on paper in my mind. He is building up to telling them who that father is that he's pointing out over and over and over again in the speech. He says, you are your fathers. You are like your fathers. You are like your father, the devil. Like three times at least, he starts building towards this revelation. That's a hard truth. Now, granted, this morning we spent a little bit of time on that, uh, and, and maybe some would say too much, but we spent some time on it nevertheless. This is what he's pointing out to them, all in the context of truth setting us free. Because who's he talking to? He's talking to Jews, yes, but he's talking to Jews whom believed on him. Now, I'm not going to argue their salvational state, but these are Jews who should have been looking for the Messiah, who in the previous verses, the, the text tells us they believed. So why is he being so harsh? Why is he being so direct? Because in the context of all of this, truth is what sets us free. This patty cake Osteen nonsense that the world does, it doesn't actually reveal truth. And it certainly doesn't set us free it makes for the captives to be even more captive. It's a wolf in sheep's clothing seeking to act as one and then lead. Taking God's people, taking the mercy of God and turning it unto lasciviousness, which is what Jude is talking about in our Sunday school study. I love it when these studies line up in such a way that we get to see it that way. The Jews who believed in verse 30 were admonished to prove their faith 
by faithfulness. And what did we talk about today? The same. You're not saved because you have faithful deeds. You're not saved by works lest you should boast. You're saved by the grace of God. But we're called to prove our faithfulness. How do we do that? Two words. Follow me. They couldn't do it because they couldn't see who they were acting like their daddy was. They kept confessing Abraham to be their father, the friend of God, as we know from our Genesis study. And yet they didn't understand how Abraham would and did handle the Lord Jesus being in his midst. They didn't understand the truth. And therefore, they couldn't be set free. Faith in Christ makes one a child of God, but abiding in the word and knowing and living the truth makes one a true disciple, a true follower of the kingdom. Why do we repent? Both John the Baptist and Jesus both said, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is what we are going toward. The purpose of the Christian is to follow him. So the first thing we want to look at is what is a sinner? And we're really just going to ask a few questions and try to uh, explain what's happening here. What is a sinner is the first point, and what is liberty? That's the second point. Jesus defines for us here how a sinner is whosoever committeth sin. They're the servant of sin. They're not merely the doer of sin. They serve it. These who seek to kill Jesus, though they, the scripture tells us they believe, they're still serving their father, their master, their daddy, Satan. They're not believing on his words to the point of following in faith. The grammarians among us will say, you mean what or who a sinner is, preacher? But no, I mean truly here, how, how? a sinner is this is what's being described here jesus defines for us how a sinner is this is the temperament this is the temperature of what a sinner is they commit a sin they serve sin sin is their master for us to understand the need to win souls as spurgeon puts it we must be able to explain to the poor lost sinner how it is that they are trapped to and in this nature they're servants to sin. This is what needs to be revealed. Is that an easy revelation to find out you're the bad guy in the story? To find out that you're the victim, but you're also the cause of villainy? And not just the cause of villainy, as we've seen in the, in the book of beginnings in our study through Genesis. There's no limit to our wickedness. No limit to the evil of our imaginations. We cannot compel the lost sinner to repent and come away from something they do not identify themselves to be kept captive by. Come away from such things, the preacher says. Come out from among them, the scripture says. Be ye separate. Those scriptures are for those church members in Corinth. But for the lost, they can't just come away. They have to know what they're in. They have to know what they are compelled to do and what it is they serve. And I don't think, I don't think ripping off the Band-Aid is even an, uh, an efficient way of describing what Jesus does here. These all just had uh, essentially a party, this Feast of Tabernacles. And he speaks, as we talked last time, right into the symbolism of that feast, 
right into what they would have been doing at the time, taking down those candelabra, those, those chandelier, those lights. He confesses himself to be the light. He points out to them their need of the light, their fear or hatred of the light, their love for the darkness. He reminds them how they were led by light and how it was him. Here, he reminds us that before Abraham was, I am. He speaks to himself as not only being there when Abraham was, but being an element, an active agent in creation itself, as we saw in our study in Genesis at the beginning. They don't know him. They believe on him. They're compelled by him. And Jesus says that's not enough. There's a book, um, and, and it's, it's got some secular in it, so you're going to need to use discernment if you read it. I enjoy it. It's by Kyle Eidelman, and it's called Not a Fan. It's a very good book because it points out how probably a lot of us could identify to this as well. It points out how many of us, at our best, on our own, are merely fans of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that what he had for us? That brings us to this question, what is liberty? Were we freed? Did he go to the cross merely for us to be crazed fans sitting in the dog pound? Fans of what he did, but not followers and participants in what is ongoing, what he's still doing? Jesus says here that all who commit sin, all are tempted of sin, are we not? That temptation is everywhere at all times. Uh, that's a very similar phrase to what we use to describe the sovereignty, the omnipresence of God just a few months ago, and I believe we were quoting Milburn when, I, when we used that phrase. Everything all at once is how I think he put it. That's how temptation also is. Now, temptation isn't sovereign. It's not omnipresent. But in time, sin is everywhere. Sin laces everything Every good thing still has a season. And as we go past that season, it can become damaging for the soul. Manna was great. And if they were to eat it when they were to eat it and not try to save it, manna in the portion that they were instructed to eat it gave them everything they needed. Manna saved up and stored outside of the, the Sabbath uh, saving wormed. It went bad. It went corrupt. If that can happen to this thing that's simply named manna because they don't know what it is, but it fell from the heavens by God himself, then we should give credence to the fact that everything has a season. And moderation is a word that we as Christians should really get to know very, very well. Can good things come from Facebook? I think that virtual conference was probably a good thing. I think our sharing of our sermons is a good thing. I think witnessing to other individuals on Facebook is a good thing. I think sharing half-naked pictures of yourself is a bad thing. And I think us old men shouldn't go looking for half-naked pictures of young ladies. I don't know why I would have to say it, but men, you shouldn't put half-naked pictures of yourself either on Facebook. Bad thing. It goes too far. And the same thing can be said of anything if we go too far. Uh, e even of the ministry. And I know a lot of preachers who have done this, going so far in the work of the ministry that we ignore our responsibilities as dads, as husbands, it becomes a bad thing. Everything in moderation, everything to a season. 
all who give in to said temptation and commit or act sin in that regard, instantaneous to the very thought of doing so, they are then the servant of sin. Sin owns this one. This is how the sinner is. So what is liberty then? With this understanding of what a sinner is, what is liberty? Why should it be craved? Why should it be desired? Why is it precious? Why is it our commission? Christ is speaking about spiritual freedom here, not physical, which some in that, uh, maybe not in that particular audience would have craved, but they certainly would have craved political freedom or a, a liberty from taxation. The lost sinner is in bondage to lusts. The lost sinner is in bondage to the flesh, to sins, to Satan, to the world. We saw this with Jacob, and, I, and I, I, I believe I was real careful to make sure we pointed it out this way, that in a lot of ways, in the 20 years he was with Laban, he was kind of worshiping Laban. He was answering to Laban as Laban being his daddy, dictating what everything would cost, how everything would be, how everything would go. And when he was at home, it really seemed like his mama, Rebecca, was doing the same. We've got a very different Jacob now with where we're at in our Wednesday studies. But in that time, in Pandanaram, when, in that time when he was up there, involved in what he was involved in, he simply married two women because that's our tradition. And then he simply went in to uh, the bond servants because that's what his wives wanted him to do. It was the whole mandrake deal after all. You, you're, you have to do it now. We don't see a man standing on conviction. We see a man standing on other people's sand and sinking. Titus 3.3, 3, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Who would choose that for themselves? If I said, act now, call this number, 1999, seven easy payments, you can have this. Foolishness, disobedience, deceived constantly, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another, you'd say, no thank you. But if I said, I'll give you a new Corvette, you say, well, just how hateful, how foolish, how disobedient. Or you might say, I don't drive a stick. I don't know about Eddie, but I wouldn't drive a Corvette. It wasn't a stick. That's not much fun at all. Or if I say, well, you know, I could promise you lots of money. A, a lifetime of success. Brand new house bought and paid for. Well, then you'd say, just how bad a deal could this be? I could put up with a little bit of that. A little bit of sin after all. What's the worst can happen? Could it leaven the whole lump? It would. It absolutely would. And it does every time because you're not just friends with sin. Jesus says he who committed sin is servant of sin, slave to sin. Think about a little white lie and how many more lies you have to invest to keep it real and how long you have to live on pins and needles praying no one finds out. And all the deceit that Rachel's going through in our Wednesday night study right now to make sure no one knows she's the one who took the idols. She, she spoke there in that text on Wednesday night. 
about how she couldn't get up off the camel because, uh, and what she's alluding to is maybe possibly a menstrual cycle or some, some part of the woman's period in which it would have been inappropriate for her to, to move about in such a way, but she's covering her sin. What happens a few weeks later? I mean, if, this, if these are people you knew, and they say, you, we, you can't, we can't come over for game night because you know, it's inappropriate because of the, the season for my wife. And then two weeks later, you find evidence that, well, maybe she's had it for three weeks. I mean, it seems like it's happening again. And this has got to be covered up. I mean, I know it's a, it's a different example, but you understand what I'm saying. You can't lie once. Every lie is in tandem to the next lie until it leads to repentance or eternal damnation. Consider Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, where in time past ye walked according to the curse of this world, the course, rather, of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others." Sin, like a type of infection, but much worse, convinces its servant, its slave, that they are fulfilling all their wildest dreams, fulfilling their desires, as it says here, the desires of the flesh, the desires of their mind. But we are not going to understand what liberty is without considering the cost. What did it cost them to do that? What did it cost them? What did it cost Jesus for our freedom? For this liberty we're talking about, what did it cost? By receiving the truth in Christ, the slaves are set free. The truth set them free, as he says here. Jesus' opponents, of course, appealed to their human advantages. We are Abraham's children. How dare you say that we are slaves? I am a manager. I am rich. I am very happy in life. How dare you say things that I don't agree with? How dare you make accusations that Satan is my father? No doubt they were offended. Jesus had a way in this discourse of getting right to it. it stirred them up. It got them good and angry to the point where they were lashing out and saying, Abraham is our father. And he gives them examples of how they don't live like it. And they were still missing the point. But he goes right to it. You're living like your father is Satan. Follow me. They said the same thing to John the Baptist. Matthew 3, 7 through 9. When he saw the many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bring forth therefore fruit, meet for repentance and think not to say within yourselves we have Abraham to our father for I say unto you that God is able to uh, able of these stones to raise up children of Abraham I don't know who's more direct between that from John the Baptist and that that we read as our text from the Lord Jesus this is this is a, a hard subject amongst our people and I'm gonna bring it to, to home for you because I've seen it firsthand. Your daddy being Joe Wilson doesn't make you a saved person, doesn't even make you a landmark Baptist. Your daddy being Milburn Cockrell 
James Hobbs, whoever you want to put in the blank, my kid's daddy being me, is not going to save them. And it certainly doesn't give me a pass for praying for their salvation. You being the grandchild of Milburn Cockrell, man, you heard some great preaching, and you have access to thousands of wonderful sermons and writings. But you never lifting a finger to read them. You never lifting a finger to read Scripture. You never considering the estate of your soul is not going to lead to your salvation because he knew the truth. He worked hard. I promise you just the taste I've had of what he's left behind. He worked hard because he loved God the Father. But if you don't love God the Father, you won't be in heaven. If you're not born again, notice it says there, if, it doesn't say if your kinfolk are not born again. It says if you are not born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. This is personal, beloved. Jesus came right at their throats because it was about them, not Abraham. He literally tells them, I am well aware of Abraham. I am well aware of his situation. Man, if he wanted to preach long like me, he could have gone into a couple of famines and given some examples of what Abraham could do. But we need to take this very seriously. I don't really love that our sister churches, ourselves included, hang on to such lineages. I'm sure if Milburn were here now, he'd tell you I was but a man. I tell you I'm but a man. And I've heard Joe and the other name that I mentioned and, and many, many, many other preachers, Doyle Thomas included, say the same thing. I am just a man. And I was as much a sinner as any one of you. Maybe worse. Probably worse. My salvation won't save my brother. My salvation won't save Zebediah. Or Liviana. If anything, my salvation reveals just how dire their situation is and just how much they need the Lord Jesus as their Savior. They make a comparison, and something we need to consider in tandem with the, the idea of what is liberty. They, there's a comparison here between divine sonship and Abrahamic sonship. And it's happened there with John the Baptist as he addressed the vipers, Pharisees and the Sadducees. And it's happening here. Jesus made a distinction between Abraham's fleshly seed there in verse 37 and Abraham's spiritual children there in verse 39. So consider what we see in Romans 4.11. And, and it's speaking of Abraham, and Abraham received the sign of circumcision. Another example of something carried further than what it was intended to that became a, a, a trap, a stumbling block for believers a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had yet being uncircumcised that he might be the father of all them that believe though they be not circumcised that righteousness might be imputed unto them also galatians chapter 4 verses 22 through 29 for it is written that abraham had two sons the one by a bondmaid the other by a free woman and what a picture here. We could go a long way with what we see in Galatians 4, and Lord willing, we still will at some point. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh. Remember Sarah said, go unto uh, Hagar, 
uh, and and have a baby with her because she was convinced that she would she would never have a baby. Her womb was uh, closed. He was uh, the born woman was born in the uh, bond woman was born in the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. Which things are an allegory? For these are the two covenants: the one from the Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Agar. For this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, thou barren, that bearest not. Break forth, and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. Now we, brethren... As Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as, uh, as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even as it is now. And if you recall, uh, in our Genesis study, Ishmael was sent away because Sarah felt that he was persecuting uh, her son Isaac. And that continues to this day. Those that believe being persecuted by those that do not. People reject Jesus because they confuse the physical, and the spiritual. Jesus spoke to Nicodemus about a spiritual birth, but he asked about a physical birth. Remember, he said, you must be born again, and Nicodemus responded, should I return unto my mother's womb? Um, I don't know if he meant it comically. I don't know if he was sneering when he said it, but it certainly would have seemed like a ridiculous notion as much as it would today actually maybe today it would be less ridiculous because we've got a lot of craziness happening now but it would have seemed very unlikely that Jesus was going to encourage him to return to his mother's womb Christ offered the woman at the well eternal life living water but she talked about literal physical water she talked about the inappropriateness of her accessing the water knowing of her uncleanness she knew more about her spiritual condition in john 4 than nicodemus seemed to know in john 3 i don't know if we've ever thought about it that way she didn't know everything but she knew she was unfit that's a great place to start but there's a third type of sonship one that judas iscariot was very familiar with a satanic sonship Jesus pointed out the characteristics of the children of the devil in his, uh, his discourse here. In verse 37, he says, They will not give place to the word of God. Verse 39, he says, They trust in the flesh. Human birth. Works, for example. In verse 40 and verse 44, he revealed that they hated him. They were seeking to kill him, which we saw earlier in John 8 as well. He revealed that Satan is a murderer and that his children imitate him. In verse 42, he revealed that they do not love Christ, the satanic sonship. They do not love Christ or the things of Christ. He's identifying for them the characteristics of the father that they were pursuing, that they were following. That's what this is all about. Who are you following? Here's what your steps reveal about who you're following. They do not love Christ or the things of Christ. They do not understand the word. They're blinded by Satan, according to verse 43. They are liars and love lies more than the truth, verse 44. They will not hear the word of God. They hate it. 
verse 47. Remember, these children of the devil, especially those in the crowd uh, that he was addressing here, were not grossly immoral people. They were self-righteous, religious people who rejected Christ. These aren't the filthy malefactors that would be on the right and the left hand of Jesus on the cross. These are Jews. These are the faithful ones, the overly religious ones that attended the Feast of the Tabernacles. Not all attended all the feasts, by the way, the backsliders, just like us. But these are the ones who came. Not only the ones that came. Anybody go to college in here? Anybody get A's ever in their life? You've seen the students who stay... John's like... You've seen the students who stay after? That's these guys. The feast is over. So he's not talking to grossly immoral murderers. He's talking to the ones so faithful and attending to their religious requirements. They stayed after. And he says, your daddy is Satan. Your works reveal that he is the one you follow. Uh-oh, what's that say about us? Go back tonight and read John 8, both discourses, and consider the fact that, well, one was a publican, one was a Pharisee. Which one are we? He's not talking to grossly immoral, dirty sailors that sleep with hookers and kill for a living. He's talking to religious folk. He's talking to those that trust that they're good enough. Look again at the beginning of our text. To those Jews, he's talking to those Jews which believed on him. And he says, if you continue in my word, then ye are my disciples. He says, follow me. Now, all the other places where we read that just today alone, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Follow me, you'll no longer thirst. Follow me, you'll find rest. Follow me, follow me. And to these who weren't following, he reveals all these characteristics of children of the devil. And he reveals it in religious folk. Many people today are deluded by Satan into an outward form of godliness, lacks the power of the gospel. That thing in Asbury, what's the one rule they had? No preachers, no pastors, no ministers. I'm sure they had other rules, but that's the one that made news. And they had revival, they said. Many people today are deluded by Satan into an outward form of godliness that lacks the power, the power of the gospel. But these people think they are truly saved and going to heaven. They have a dangerous confidence in that. They live a life free of repentance as though sin was God's mistake and salvation is what he owes them to make it right. You messed up. You had to do this to fix what you messed up. That's how they act. Lord, help us to not be deceived in such a way. It's better for us to smote our chest and say, Be merciful unto me, a sinner, because we are completely dependent upon his mercy. 
We have nothing else. Everything you have in 30 days after you die is going to erupt, explode, and fall apart. And that's the best a dead man can do. But Jesus, Lazarus, come forth! They roll away the stone. And he comes out bound. Bound. Let me... Let me give this to you again. No, it's in here because I read it. 24 to 72 hours after death, the internal organs decompose. Three to five days after death, the body starts to bloat and blood-containing foam leaks from the mouth and the nose, which is one of the reasons they had the handkerchief that they put over the faces of the dead. Four days. His sisters say four days. You could have brought him back. You could have saved him. I believe you could have done it, but it's been four days. You're late. He's dead. Those things I just read to you, human bodies still work the same way, if not worse now than they did then because of what we feed them. But his body would have already been in the process of doing that next step. What's come forth sound like? Follow me. Comes out. He's got a seat at the supper table in the very next chapter. Judas is going about doing the same thing he was doing before, not even changed between the two chapters. Well, I bet Mary Martha felt it. You know Lazarus did. Well, what all happened? Did everything go back in? Everything settled down? I don't know, and I don't need to know. What I need to know is he said, come forth. He said, follow me. And this ignorant, incapable, dead man that could do nothing but decompose followed. Can he not save the hardest of hearts in this room? Well, he caused Lazarus to come back. If he wants you, you don't stand a chance, I guess is a good way of putting it. He's going to get you. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. There's nothing that binds his will. Praise the Lord, there's nothing that influences His grace. The Lord addresses here in the, in the final parts of this, honor and dishonor. God honors His Son, but self-righteous men dishonor that same Son. They dishonored Him verbally by calling Him a Samaritan. We see that right in the middle of it and by accusing him of having a devil. They even take offense to his words about uh, him calling their father the devil, saying that they weren't fornicators. They were worse, really, by, based on what he revealed. We should also note here that these very religious, and go back to John 4, Remember this morning we read the Samaritan woman says that you say that Jerusalem is the place where we should go to worship. And he says it's coming a day in which there or even in this mountain, you, it, it all changes. It all, worship is not what we thought it was. She wouldn't have been worthy to come to this feast. 
But here it's revealed that they, they call him a Samaritan and they considered, these hyper-religious individuals considered Samaritans scum of the earth. Mixed breeds. Dogs. Jesus told them that Abraham saw his day and rejoiced. How did Abraham see Christ's day? How's that possible? Same way we will, by faith. There's that doctrine again. Listen to Hebrews 11, verse 8 through 16. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out, not knowing whether he went. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed, and was delivered of a child when she was past age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore sprang there even of one, and him as good as dead. So many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, in a heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Abraham glimpsed at Christ's redemptive work when he offered Isaac on the altar. One of the most emotional chapters in Genesis. You go read Genesis 22 if you hadn't read it lately. Compare it to Lazarus. Compare it to our redemption. What a beautiful piece of scripture where a faithful man of God rises up early, prepares the necessary tools to, to, to sacrifice, to offer his son, his son he waited so long for, Isaac, to offer him as an offering unto God because he was commanded to. There's some of us that won't get out of bed and come to church and we've been commanded to. Abraham got up early to kill his son because he was commanded to. How did Abraham see Christ's day? By faith. I think he saw it in everything at some point. I like talking to older folks, the folks who have been saved a long time especially, because they kind of point out things to me that I miss a lot. They point out to me the Lord in everything. Our, our grandma used to do that. She'd point out the Lord in just about everything. And it's because she was looking for it. Do we look for it? Those challenges I've issued over the last two or three weeks has just simply been look for it. The abhor wicked things and embrace the righteous things and all that, it's just simply been look for it. Back in August when we uh, when we had a fast, fast challenge and we were praying and removing whatever distractions it was in our life for a period of time, it was just simply watch for it. Look for the Lord. Be still 
and just watch what he's doing. Pay attention to how he's working. In August, uh, there were some of us that didn't think they'd ever have a baby. A year and a half ago, there were two other people that thought they were done, thought they'd never get another one, that their baby-making season ended with three miscarriages, and that was it. There's one among you today who a few years back fell. He was just getting groceries. Fell and went through a short season of terror in the days that followed. He's still dealing with a lingering neck injury. At some point he was given a, a, a diagnosis of possible epilepsy. A few months later his wife fell off a mezzanine, fell on her arm backwards. You looking for the Lord in these things? Those are trials. Those are his trials in particular, but those are trials. We're we looking for the Lord in these things. Think of Samaru's story again. I'm not ashamed to tell you I wept when he shared that. In the three miscarriages that we've had, babies I never got to hold. I got to tell you, the, the first thing was not looking for the Lord's blessings. Samaru lost a baby he got to hold, got to hear cry. And it drove him to the Lord. Let's not wait on that before we repent. Let's not wait on that precious thing you put before God as a reason to not serve as you should. He'll take it. It's his to take. You see how these religious Jews hated Christ? They sought to kill him. This was proof indeed that they were still oppressed by their hard hearts. Their only hope was regeneration of the Holy Spirit, that they would be made by the Word of God to feel Him. Their only hope was in that opening verse, if you continue in my Word. That's not an easy walk. If you bring any part of yourself to that walk, it's going to be really difficult. This is why he says, die unto yourself, bear your cross and follow me. Jesus claimed to be Jehovah God, when he said, before Abraham was, I am, there in verse 58. Think back to Exodus 3.14 where it says, And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. Moses there was looking for an easy way to connect. I mean, I'm thinking this is it anyway, because this is what I went through when I surrendered to preach. Moses is looking for an easy way to present this thing he's being sent to the Pharaoh to say, uh, an easy way to present it to the people, some kind of credibility and authority to say, I'm God sent me, and that's going to sound crazy. Jehovah wanted me to stop by. Oh, you talk to God. I mean it, fiery bush. What? And God gives him the keys. That, I mean, when he heard this, he was probably like, yes, this is exactly the answer. Tell him I am that I am sent you. Careful what you pray for, because I bet Moses thought, yeah, yeah, I'm just, that's the answer, huh? I am that I am sent me. It, it's no great feat if he tells us some secret password to get all these hearts to open up. He says, have faith. He says, follow me. Common sense says, if I go to the king and the scepter's not lifted, I could die, Esther says. Common sense says Moses goes back into the house of Pharaoh and they knew him. Read the scriptures. 
and says, God said, let my people go. The easy solution for Pharaoh is to kill him. He was supposed to die anyway. But God said, this is my plan. And God knows his plans can't fail. We have to follow after him. Satan's lie is that Jesus Christ is not the Son of God. Consider, and we're closing, I promise. Consider 1 John chapter 4, first three verses. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God. Discernment. Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye, that the, uh, hereby know ye the Spirit of God. And there's how. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. Preacher, indeed are we fighting a spiritual war? I mean, John writes right here, it was already in the world. This is in his day. It was in the world before that. There's no reason for us to think we're not still there. The truth, the, the truth proclaimed to set the captives, uh, the, the truth that was proclaimed here to set the captives free is that God gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. And if you think about it, he alludes to all of this in his discourse, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. Yep, it's John 3 again. John 8 is his, not truly public, but to the Jews, openly to the Jews, is his teaching of what he taught Nicodemus back in John 3. Nicodemus wasn't looking for it that night, but basically he got the preacher's outlines. He asked a silly question, didn't he? Which we talked about this morning. There are no silly questions. He came asking a silly question at the beginning of John 3, in the darkness of night, and Jesus handed him his outlines, the same outlines he was going to give the Jews, the faithful religious Jews, faithful to their religion Jews, in these two discourses. We saw it in both halves of this outline. It was spoken there in John 8, 24, Ye shall die in your sins, for if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. He said in John 3, you're dead already. You're condemned already. And reiterated it for us in John 8, 28, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am he. Which of course points back to John 3, that he must be lifted up like the brazen serpent. What a wonderful illustration of discernment. Is this true? Compare Scripture to Scripture. It's absolutely true. John 8 agrees with John 3, which agrees with the event with Moses and the brazen serpent when all were bit and were dying. All of this echoes from beginning to end because it is the truth of God's Word. Can we believe and follow? Will we indeed be set free? Is there truly rest in Christ Jesus? It's as true today as it was then. May the Lord open up our hearts and give us understanding and cause for us to repent.